Our scripture uh, reading this morning comes from uh, the book of Romans. We're going to be reading uh, the second half of Romans uh, chapter 13, uh, which are verses 8 uh, through 14. Uh, You can follow along in your own copy of the scriptures or on the screens or in your bulletin. This is God's word. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the the words uh, of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, uh, would be pleasing to you as we see you in your word here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've uh, been with us over the past uh, eight or so weeks, uh, you know we've been looking at the, the, the mysterious absolutes uh, of the book of Romans. We're going to actually take a break from it for the rest of the summer. We'll probably come back to it at some point and, and finish out the book of Romans. But uh, for now, we're going to wrap up at least this section. And uh, what we've seen is this letter is this masterful, uh, beautiful, incredible letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote to a very young church in the city of Rome. And if you've been with us, you'll know that the first 11 chapters outline really the, the doctrinal superstructure uh, of the gospel, incredible theological teachings throughout. But then when you get to chapter 12, things change a little bit. From, from verses 12 to 16, uh, the Apostle Paul is, is taking all of that theology, all of that doctrine, and he's helping us to see what it looks like when it's played out in a real life. What does all this doctrine mean for you and I in the everyday as followers of Jesus Christ? And this, of course, really mattered for Paul. Uh, It mattered for Paul in a lot of ways, but it mattered because the Christians in Rome really had a very unique opportunity for influence. Now, when you think about it, they, they lived in this city of Rome, which was a, Rome that, or a city that wasn't very friendly uh, to Christianity. In many ways, it was hostile to the gospel. So, so if you were a member of this church in Rome, it was far from easy to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But in spite of all that, they had an incredible opportunity to be a witness to Jesus Christ in what was one of the most influential cities uh, in the ancient world, if not one of the most influential cities in all of history. Now, cities have always been important. Uh, They've always been important, even up to this day, as centers of culture, places where culture has shaped. 
So those Christians that lived in Rome and, and even Christians today, like us, who live in, in, in a city, we have incredible opportunity to influence the rest of the world for our witness for Jesus Christ. And so Paul's words for them are incredibly important, but they're also remarkably simple when it comes to living out the doctrine of Jesus Christ. His words to them are this, love others in costly and sacrificial ways. You see, see, Paul could have lectured the church in Rome on a winsome way to accommodate the culture um, or to communicate the gospel in a winsome way. He could have talked to them about apologetics and about how to defend the faith, but he doesn't. All he says to them is love others. And that really becomes the crux of this second half of the book of Romans, and it's the crux of our passage here this morning. And what I'd like to do is is look at it a little bit backwards. Uh, I'd like to look at the second half of this section, verses 11 11 to 14, the urgency of time, and then go back to the first few verses, uh, verses 8 to 10, and look at the law of love. You see, the testimony of these Christians, how they conducted themselves, was important because of the influential context in which they were in, but it was also incredibly important because of the urgency of time. And that's what Paul establishes here. Look at verse 11. He says, "'Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep.'" For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, and the day is at hand. Now, at the risk of, of uh, the supreme risk of, of sounding like an old man, uh, I have to say that it feels like for me personally as if time moves faster every year just seems like it speeds up every single year. One minute, uh, I'm changing diapers for my kids, and then I feel like I blink, and now I have a child who is halfway through middle school, and I look at my wife and said, where did the time gone? How did all this happen so quickly? And I can remember in my younger years, all I wanted to do was to speed up time. All I wanted to do was be older and be an adult, and now that I am adult, all I want to do is slow down time because it seems like it is going so quickly. Now, there's been all sorts of studies on this, uh, studies on how people uh, perceive time and how they function in time, and, and those studies have asked really interesting questions, like why do some people perceive time better than others? Or maybe it isn't so much that they perceive things better, maybe it's just that they value things better. Uh, my family and I, we, we, we just got back from a vacation at the beach, and I, and I always remark each time I go at the beach that, that time, or at least people's perception of time, operates so much slower at the beach than it does back at home or in cities or in urban contexts. And, and so people have studied, why is that? Why do, why do different people perceive time in different ways? How does one person's perception of reality make them five minutes early to every single meeting? And why do other people's perceptions of time make them five minutes late to every sort of meeting that they are invited to. So what is it that that makes us perceive time differently? And if we can figure that out, how do we speed up 
or slow down time depending on our disposition. Now, all these questions are really interesting. They're interesting things to study, but at the end of the day, we all know this. We know that time itself is fixed, and that's what becomes the challenge with time because all of us have a certain undefined amount of it, and with each passing moment, we have less and less of it. Have you ever thought about that? We can always go out and earn more money, but we can't earn more time. We have this undefined amount of it, and each day it is less and less. And that's why Paul is speaking here in Romans 13 about the urgency of time, the urgency with the way we deal with time. Now, I hope my, my kids aren't listening, um, but I, I thought back to my, my college or academic days uh, when I was thinking about time this week, and uh, I have to confess that at times, especially towards the end of my academic career, I tended to be a bit of a procrastinator. Uh, I would be really slow uh, to get ahead with my schoolwork or, or even stay on schedule with my schoolwork, and so I would delay it, and I would delay it, and then it was the night before an assignment was due, and I would sit down and, and power through it with, with kind of this laser focus. I, I would get things done. Maybe, maybe you can relate uh, to some degree. So by the end of my, my academic career, I, I really had two speeds. One speed was dragging my feet, and, and the other, other speed was this, this laser focus this urgent action when it came to my schoolwork. Well, what Paul is saying here, when it comes to time, that all of us should live in that speed of urgent action. Because really, the entire scriptures speak about the urgency of time. In James uh, chapter 4, it says that a wise person recognizes that their lives are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James talks about how wisdom realizes that we are not guaranteed any length of time and that our lives could even be taken from us at any moment. Job, in his book, said that his life was a breath He wrote that my days are swifter than a runner, they flee away, that man comes out like a flower and withers, he flees like a shadow and continues not. David, in the book of Psalms, says a really similar thing. He said, behold, God, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And that's why David prayed an incredibly important prayer in Psalm 39 when he said, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. In a sense, he's saying, Father, help me to live with the urgency of time And in light of that, make my days count for something. In many ways, we have to ask ourselves the same question. We ought to always be looking at our lives and asking really important questions, like how much of what we do with our time is spent on things that simply don't matter? 
How much of our time, this, this precious fixed commodity that we have, how much of our time do we spend on things that actually make a difference? But what Paul does is he doesn't just advocate for the urgency of time, but he adds another layer to this, and that layer is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. You see, one of the, scripture, one of the things the Scriptures tell us is there are really two advents or two comings of Jesus Christ. And the first advent was when Jesus came in His humility. When Christ, He, he took on flesh, He dwelt among His creation, He was crucified, killed, He was raised on the third day, and He ascended back into heaven. But the Scriptures speak about a second advent, or another return of Christ, and this one will be in the fullness of glory. When, when Christ will return in all of His power and strength, and He will bring a final end to all sin and death, a once-for-all end. And so we here today live within those two advents. We live in, in, in the in-between, and we do not know when Christ will return in His glory. Paul didn't know it, but he said that we need to be awake for it, to realize that it is coming and could come at any moment. If you read the Gospels, uh, really Christ spoke about the very same thing. Uh, He told the parable of the shrewd manager and uh, the parable of the ten virgins, and each one of those parables speak about this urgency of time. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 12 these words. He said, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home for the wedding feast so that they may open the door at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So in effect, what Jesus is saying is this. Live as if today is the day. Live as if this is the day of Christ's return. Paul is saying here, don't, don't be captured by sloth or, or by any of number of sins of the flesh that Paul outlines and describes in this passage. And instead, he says, be ready. You see, we spend so much of our time as if we are guaranteed a certain measure of years. And what we say to ourselves is that we'll get to this or we'll handle this thing later. Maybe I'll mend that broken relationship in my life tomorrow, or I'll share my faith with that coworker or friend tomorrow. Or, or I'll get around to helping the poor or the victim of injustice when my schedule lightens up or later this year. But Paul says here, no. He says, live with urgency because today is the day. Don't procrastinate with the things that you have been called to do. But to link it back to the first part of this section... Paul's saying is it isn't just a lack of urgency that keeps us away from the most important of things, but what he also says is that there's a certain measure of self-centeredness 
that keeps us from those things as well. Paul wants us to ask, how much of your time is spent on loving yourself versus loving others? You see, what sloth does is it prevents us from seizing opportunities, but sloth also locks us up into a certain measure of self-love. And that's why Paul begins this section talking about the law of love in verses 8 to 10. Look at verse 8. Owe no one to anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Essentially what he's saying is if the time is short, then how should our time be spent? And what Paul says is it should be spent loving others radically and serving others in costly ways. Paul's arguing, if you look at the Scriptures, the Scriptures are full of laws, but they can really be summed up in this, that we are called to love God and to love others. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. You see, there's two things that we see about this law of love, and the first is that this sort of love requires intentional investment. Uh, this, this past uh, week or so ago, I reread The Little Prince. Do you remember that from when you were young and you had to read that book in school? Uh, it's by uh, Antony de Saint-Exubery. I'm probably saying uh, his name wrong. But if you remember, it tells a story about a, a little prince, a, a little young boy, uh, who lived on a planet all by himself. And when he's on this planet all by himself, all of a sudden a, a flower springs up on that planet. It's a rose. And, and the little prince is immediately annoyed with how needy this flower is on his planet. But what he decides to do is, instead of being annoyed, he decides to invest his life in this flower. And what happens in that investment, he finds that he comes to love this little flower. And later on, it says this in the book, It is the time you spent on your rose that makes your rose so important, because you become responsible forever for what you've tamed. One sees clearly only with the heart. Anything essential is invisible to the eyes. You see, our tendency uh, in our sinfulness is to invest in ourselves, to love ourselves and invest a significant of time on ourselves, to be given to this thing called self-love above all other things. Uh, I was reminded of, of uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I was listening to uh, a sermon this week, and it used that uh, as an illustration. And, and the preacher in the sermon reread that book. I don't know if you remember that from when you were in high school as well, but was struck by the fact that the main problem of Mr. Hyde, this evil, this evil character in the story, was that, that, that Mr. Hyde was self-love and self-centeredness taken to its ultimate extreme. And those that looked on Mr. Hyde were ultimately repulsed by him, not because of his looks, 
but because of just how self-centered he really was. Friends, if you're like me, you struggle to love other people. You struggle to love them in their quirks and in their needs and in their challenges. Loving others certainly does not come easy. But maybe for all of us, we have to realize that the investment needs to come first. Maybe we have to invest in something before the feelings of love come along or eventually come later. We need to invest in loving ourselves less and invest more in loving others. Because self-love certainly comes naturally, and because of that, true love for others requires an investment. It requires an obedience. Ultimately, it requires a work of God's Spirit in our hearts. It requires us to step forward in obedience to what God calls us to do, whether we feel like it or whether we don't. In fact, often if we wait till we feel like it, those moments will never come. But if we choose to invest in obedience, in loving others, then often what we find is that the feelings of love come in the process. So this sort of love requires intentional investment, but we also have to realize that this love involves risk and it often involves cost. You see, once the little prince left his planet, he immediately missed his flower and his heart was broken. And the author says this, you risk tears if you let yourself be tamed. You see, friends, we, we live in a world that's been broken and corrupt by sin. And that carnage of sin and death, it's all around us. We traffic in it every day in all sorts of different ways. And because of sin, what we know, if we look at our own hearts, is that we are born to use others, wanting to use others for our personal gain. And guess what? They're born the same way. And so as a result of that, we have caused hurt in the lives of other people, and we have been victims of that hurt as well. And so often what we do with that hurt is we lock ourselves up into self-protection. We block our hearts off, we harden them, but then the gospel steps in and it causes us to do something different. You see, what the gospel does is it points us to Christ. It points us to the one who gave himself as a sacrifice to the very ones who had spurned his love. The gospel overwhelms sinners with the gift of God's grace. And in gratitude, the gospel calls us to emulate our Savior, to step out and love others in risky and costly ways. Uh, In a streetcar named Desire, Tennessee Williams wrote this. He said, what is straight? A line can be straight or a street, but the human heart, oh no, it's curved like a road through the mountains. And you see, as we love others, we find that their hearts are just as complex and messy 
as our hearts are. That the path when it comes to loving others is far from straight. It's curved like a road through mountains. It is full of ups and downs. And our hearts may very well be broken in the process as we love others. We may have our faltering moments where it is easy to quit on loving others. But what the gospel reminds us is this. That if Christ's love for us is steadfast and relentless as we sang before, then so should our love be for others. Friends, this is the urgent task that the gospel calls us to. To be loved deeply by the Father and to love others deeply in response. And so, friends, my encouragement to all of us is this, that we recognize that our time here is short, that we recognize that that Christ, our Savior, could return at any moment, that we repent of so many ways that we love ourselves above others, that we look to the selfless love of Jesus Christ demonstrated for us in the gospel and that we seek to love others in radical and costly ways. Let's pray.